this is, um, I think this is about the sixth or the seventh in our series of uh, online meetings called the ABCs of Marxism. And um, we've done a very wide ranging um, uh, series of topics, different topics. And tonight we're going to be talking about the Communist Manifesto and uh, Dan Rawnsley. Um, so, um the Communist Manifesto is, though short, a very, very rich text. Um, there are a lot of threads to pick up on, and I don't propose to... I propose to kind of stick to a few key points. Um, but if there's something I don't cover, then, you know, that's not a, that's not at all a barrier on um, raising it in the discussion. There are... This text kind of picks up lots and lots of ideas that are developed in other parts of socialist um, theory. Um, I'll give you a bit of context first of where the where the book comes from. So, um, in it's sort of I guess like it's associated with the revolutions of 1848, but the the whole thing is kind of finished and written before the 1848 revolutions actually start. So it's kind of a, a book for the moment before um, 1848, um, and it comes from a movement that's sort of politically very diverse in Europe. Um, if you're a socialist, you're, you're interested in the social question, which is answering this problem that we've had a revolution and for the bourgeoisie, for the ruling class, that's in some cases solved the democratic question. Um, there are, you know, governments with constitutions now in some places at least, um, or there have been for periods of time. And the main thing is just to kind of get that sorted everywhere. Um, and the social question is saying, yes, but like the, there's still poverty. We have democracy, but there's still poverty. There are lots of social problems. If you're a socialist, you kind of want to sort out, you're interested in, you want to sort out the social problem. Um, and that's incredibly broad. Um, and the Communist Manifesto intervenes into that and says, you know, we are communists and this is what we think. Um, in 1846, Marx and Engels, along with others, set up the Communist Correspondence Committee, and they begin exchanging ideas um, and um, kind of discussing discussing their thoughts. Um, one of the groups they establish links with is the League of the Just, which is um, set up in London. Um, and uh, in June 1890, uh, 1847, sorry, um, it renames itself the Communist League. Um, at, um, at its June con Congress and um, has a second Congress in uh, December 1847, which kind of Marx and Engels' ideas, um, Marx and Engels like succeed in sharpening the ideas of the Communist League. So in June, the League um, says its aim is the emancipation of humanity by spreading the theory of the community of property and its speediest possible practical introduction. So quite kind of you know, we want, we want the community of property. We want it to come about as fast as possible. There's not really an agency there. It's a kind of like a grand idea. And by December, um, Marx and Engels have succeeded in getting that changed to the aim of the League is the overthrow of the bourgeoisie, the rule of the proletariat, the abolition of the old bourgeois society, which rests on the antagonism of classes and the foundation of a new society without classes and without private property. And that introduces some, in there are some of the kind of core ideas that are then carried over into the Communist Manifesto that um, what communists are interested in is conflict between classes. Um, 
What they want to do specifically is overthrow the bourgeoisie, the ruling class of our society, a capitalist society. Um, and what they want to do is create a new society without private property. More on, more on that later. Um, Marx is asked to um, redraft the programme of the Communist League and goes away to write the Communist Manifesto. It takes him a while. Um, the Central Committee has to write to him saying, hurry up. Um, and even then, it's probably the case that he missed the deadline, um, which I don't like that story because it kind of encourages people in our movement to develop further bad habits of not being punctual. Um, but what the Communist Manifesto achieves is a sharpening of ideas in the movement and it becomes a much more important text further on. It's an important text for the first international angles in the um, in an introduction he wrote in 1888, in a preface he wrote to the manifesto in 1888, talks about how you know these sorts of ideas um, helped the first international which came later um, to kind of develop politically and carried um, the kind of early working class movement kind of forward in its political thinking. Um, and specifically, it kind of sharpens those ideas in terms of, you know, we're interested in the social question, but we have a specific set of ideas about how that can be dealt with to do with the abolition of capitalism and to do with working class agency. People who are going to do it are the organized working class. Um, like I said, the text is very rich and opens up a lot of ideas. I'm going to focus on three things that I think are interesting and important. Um, at least one of them hopefully will have some disagreement about, um, I think, maybe. Um, those ideas are capitalist progress, working class agency, and what the communists do, what the communists should do. Um, so Marx begins the Communist Manifesto, the first section after the kind of introduction, the first section, he kind of charts the development of the bourgeoisie, the ruling class under capitalism, how they emerge through a struggle in feudal society. And this kind of aligns with the, you know, the thought at the start of this section that um, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. And that applies to our society, it also applies to previous societies. For instance, feudalism out of which the bourgeoisie kind of breaks free. Um, so, and, you know, maybe later on we might kind of, it might be interesting in the discussion, contrast that idea, a his, history of society is a history of class struggle with other ideas about how society moves and changes. For instance, kind of like, you know, liberal ideas about progress that like, you know, we're just on a kind of with bumps and dips occasionally we're on great, basically like an upward trajectory of progress. Um, and contrast as well with maybe conservative ideas about some kind of golden age in the past, whether it's ancient Greece or ancient Rome or the 18th century or Victorian values, some kind of golden age you need to reach back to and preserve. Marx says no, society moves and changes and progresses through struggle between classes. Um, and in the struggle that the bourgeoisie go through, Marx talks about the kind of changes that they make to society. And he talks about the progress that capitalism goes through, that, that capitalism brings about. So he talks about, for instance, um, uh, the bourgeoisie, wherever it has got the upper hand, has put an end to all feudal patriarchal idyllic relations it has pit pitlessly 
torn asunder the motley feudal ties that bound man to his natural superiors, um, natural superiors, and has left remaining no other nexus between people um, than naked self-interest than callous cash payment. In one word for exploitation veiled by religious and political illusions, it has substituted naked, shameless, direct, brutal exploitation. It has, he argues it's simplified or um, stripped away a lot of the kind of like ideas that kind of lay over the top of um, uh, class exploitation. Um, it has accomplished wonders far surpassing Egyptian pyramids, Roman aqueducts and Gothic cathedrals. It has conducted expeditions that put in the shade all former exoduses of nations and crusades. Um, the bourgeoisie is through its exploitation of the world market given a cosmopolitan character to production and consumption in every country. I mean, I, I can go on, but um, the point is kind of capitalism brings about this tremendous burst of development, specifically industrial development, but social as well. Um, if you think about, for instance, how for a lot of the Middle Ages, the, um, for a lot of the Middle Ages, the kind of height of technology is a plough pulled by oxen for, you know, whereas capitalism takes us from um, the power loom to uh, putting people in space in less than 200 years. There's tremendous unleashing of, um, uh, you know, human energy, human potential. Um, and, you know, it makes the world a better place. And Marx thinks that too. Um, and that's contrary to an, to an idea that we come up against sometimes nowadays on the left, like that if it's capitalist, it's therefore naturally bad. The reality is much more complicated than that. The way that Marx kind of writes about it, I think, is in a kind of tone and in a tenor and, you know, in a way that suggests that, you know, the, there, there are kind of multiple sides to this. What's happening here is both good and bad. Um, but kind of, you know, tremendously progressive. Um, and, you know, Marx thinks, and I think capitalism is progressive. Um, we might have some discussion about that later, you know, whether or not we think capitalism still is progressive. I would argue that in the way that Marx wrote about it, now it remains progressive. Um, one of the things that Marx likes the most about capitalism is that it creates the working class. Um, he talks about as the kind of remaining revolutionary class, um, that um, the proletariat alone is a really revolutionary class. Um, the other classes decay and disappear in the face of modern industry. All of them, the shopkeeper, the artisan, the peasant, the small manufacturer, the lower middle class, fight against the bourgeoisie to save from extinction their existence as fractions of the middle class. Other oppressed groups under capitalism um, uh, had a tendency when Marx was writing, um, you know, other oppressed groups look back to a previous situation that they want to restore. Only the working class um, kind of looks forward to a different sort of uh, society. Um, and the other key thing about the working class is it's a movement of the majority. Um, the proletarian move, uh, movement is the self-conscious, independent movement of the immense majority in the interest of the immense majority. Um, the proletariat, the lowest stratum of our present society, cannot stir, cannot raise itself up without the whole superincumbent strata of official society being sprung into the air. It both 
because it's the majority, because it's the kind of lower rung, the oppressed class at the bottom of, you know, the bottom of the pyramid, um, when it moves, it shakes the entire society above it. Tremendous revolutionary potential. And for the first time, a revolutionary class, the bourgeoisie were a minority of society, a feudal society. The working class, for the first time, a revolutionary class that is the majority. Um, and um, in, in writing the Communist Manifesto, in calling themselves communists, um, Marx and Engels are making a kind of conscious bid to, to link to that movement. So in the 1888 preface, um, Engels says, um, he kind of explains that at the time, socialists were, people who called themselves socialists were people with lots of utopian theories. They had a plan for how they wanted the world to be. And um, they felt that like that plan was perfect. You just needed to convince people of it. You just needed to convince them of it and uh, carry it out. Whether the person you needed to convince was like the King of Prussia or, you know, um, some kind of powerful landowner, or if you just needed to sail to America, set up a perfect model city or town, or village, and kind of prove to the rest of society. The socialists were utopians. Um, and uh, Engels says, um, by all manner of, in both cases, men outside the working class movement um, and looking rather to the educated classes for support. Whatever portion of the working class have become convinced of the insufficiency of mere political revolutions and have proclaimed the necessity of a total social change, that portion then called itself communist. It was crude, rough-hewn, purely instinctive sort of communism. Still, it touched the cardinal point and was powerful enough amongst the working class to produce the utopian communism in France of Cabet and Germany of Beitling. Socialism in 1847 was a middle-class movement, communism a working-class movement. So Engels and Marx want to conscious, very specifically, they're saying this is, this is not about some grand plan, this is about the working class and the workers' movement. Um, and I think, you know, that links back to what I opened with, the argument that the kind of line that they pursued in the Communist League of kind of changing the rules to be more focused on, this isn't about realizing some kind of utopian vision, this is about a struggle between classes, between the bourgeoisie and the working class. Um, I think we kind of see this most clearly. I'm not going to go into great depth on this, but in, in part three, in section three, where Marx criticizes um, various different kinds of strands of socialism, uh, you know, reactionary socialism, conservative and bourgeois socialism, critical utopian socialism, um, kind of lines up criticism in part three. Um, the thing that these strands kind of all have in common is that they don't base their ideas around working class action. So um, the uh, reactionary socialists he describes as a kind of um, aristocratic kind of hearkening back to the good old days where, you know, where you, the worker, you were looked after, you were cared for, things were good. And, you know, things were good for me as well. The, the landlord, the baron, uh, can't we just go back to that? Um, you know, sees the working class as kind of like a tool for a kind of reactionary return. No complete absence of working class agency. As so with the kind of conservative bourgeois socialists who kind of come across as um, basically kind of philanthropists, um, you know, people who sort of wish that um, the world could carry on for them as it is, but um, who 
kind of don't don't want the kind of suffering that um, the kind of the majority of society that the masses are kind of being put through. But they don't really want anything to change. They want the oppression of this society to end, but they don't want the society that creates that oppression to end. Um, and again, they kind of view the working class as sort of something to be saved, not something that can act for itself, that can save itself. Critical utopian socialism, Marx is kind of more friendly and more sympathetic towards, um, he says it kind of lays a groundwork for um, political criticism of capitalism. Um, but again, it winds up viewing the working class as somebody that a group of experts, a group of clever people should act on behalf of. Um, and for, for Marx and Engels, the key thing is working class agency, which is an idea that they also go on to develop uh, later. Um, I'll finish off um, on what the communists do, um, which forms mostly the kind of second part of the communist manifesto. Um, they argue that the communists should see themselves as part of the working class movement, um, the communists do not form a separate party opposed to other working class parties. They have no interests separate and apart from those of the proletariat as a whole. They do not set up any sectarian principles of their own by which to shape and mould the proletarian movement. Um, he says, you know, there's stuff here about it being specifically international, um, that the national struggles of the proletariat of the different countries they point out and bring to the front the common interests of the entire proletariat, of the entire working class, independently of all nationality. There's the quote in here um, that uh, the, um, the workers have no nation. How can you take away from them something that they don't have? Um, so consciously an internationalist movement as well. Um, you know, you see this elsewhere in arguments that Marx makes about Poland. So the big international issue in this era is Polish independence. If you're in any way radical or left wing, you have an opinion about how Poland should be an independent country. Um, and um, Marx and Engels argue that they're, they're in favor of German unification very much so. They argue that, um, like, you know, the workers in Germany, the workers in Prussia, um, elsewhere they argue that those workers need Polish independence as well. They need Prussia to not be partitioning a chunk of Poland um, or else the kind of Prussian working class is sort of involved in benefiting from, kind of drawn into the oppression of the um, Polish workers and people. Um, so, you know, consciously internationalists, the interest of the, all of the workers without regard for borders. Um, and they want they think the kind of policy of this party is to form um, the proletariat into a class, for the overthrow of the bourgeoisie, for proletarian supremacy, the conquest of political power by the working class, not by a group of people acting for the working class, but by the working class itself. Um, and a kind of interesting aside, one of the, um, like I said, I think this is a very rich text, I'm going to finish soon and I've only really skimmed the surface. Um, one of the benefits of reading um, Marxist literature um, is that you kind of pick up a sense of like how, how you approach something as a Marxist. You kind of learn a bit about how to do Marxism. Um, and there's something kind of quite instructive in that vein on, um, you know, the actual program country by country then varies right near the end kind of Marx and Engels go through um, 
Switzerland, Poland, Germany, um, America, England, France, um, and they set out kind of like different sorts of ideas that socialists might pursue in these different countries, depending on the kind of, you know, the situations in those countries. There is no kind of central plan of everybody who calls themselves communist must be pursuing this exact, um, must be pursuing this exact set of programs, this exact set of policies. It's, you know, the same thing that our movement should do today, which is trying to look at what's happening, trying to place it in a historical context, trying to understand it. And I think that's kind of a, a bit of a lesson of the Communist Manifesto because it, it opens lots of doors. There are things I haven't kind of touched on at all here. Um, it raises ideas about the state that Lenin goes on to develop um, in State and Revolution, for instance. Um, there's a bit here that Marx develops elsewhere in Capital about um, machines and how they change the worker's life, how they change the work, kind of touches on ideas of alienation. Ideas of women's liberation are introduced that a kind of whole tradition of socialist um, feminism is like built on and developed. Um, there are ideas raised about capitalist private property, what that means for individual freedom, how in a society where most that depends on a small number of people having private property and no one else having private property, what does it mean to defend that private property of the minority in the name of freedom? Um, I haven't even touched on the abolition of the family and I haven't gone into the kind of 10, sort of 10 point program that you get um, at the end of part two. Um, and that's the point, kind of the Communist Manifesto opens lots of doors to kind of further ideas and like communism, like Marxism, that project is an unfinished work because the capitalist society that we live in um, hasn't finished changing, hasn't finished developing and our kind of worked out response to it has to keep developing with it. We don't have like, you know, a, a finished body of work that we can kind of draw from. We have lessons in texts like the Communist Manifesto that we can use to help us build the ideas that we need to fight capitalism today. Um, I'm gonna finish there and like I said at the start there are lots of things I haven't touched on. Please, people should raise those things in the discussion. Um, I think every time you read the Communist Manifesto, or at least I find most more recently, every time I read it I kind of start focusing on different parts, different things. Um, uh, it's definitely a book that kind of pays rereading. I've got some kind of points if we need that I thought we might discuss around, but I'll finish there. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Um, thanks, everybody. Um, this has kind of uh, reproved to me one of the reasons why I like the Communist Manifesto so much, because it throws up um, so many things, opens up so many avenues to different points and ideas. Um, if you, it's kind of like a, a sort of spaghetti junction into the various strands of thought in the Marxist movement. It kind of opens up into lots of different um, areas of socialist political theory. And um, I'll kind of go through people's points that kind of came up in order. Um, uh, I think, so both Cathy and Dan talked about um, capitalist progress and kind of reactionary anti-capitalism or the idea that kind of people um, arguing, you know, we're not just arguing against capitalism and we're at, we've got some, you know, it's, it's more obvious now, like the ways in which um, it's, it's incredibly clear, like the ways in which, for instance, capitalism is ruining the planet. How can you still talk about capitalist progress? Um, and yet, you know, it, it's, it's still a facet of it. And again, this is an idea that like Marx develops elsewhere. I think it's in Capital, in volume one of Capital somewhere. 
the idea that um, the kind of progress of capitalism is um, kind of, you know, it's, it's a double-edged sword. Like, um, it kind of, you know, massively improves kind of, you know, human society, human, you know, human life, whilst also resting on, like, the most horrendous exploitation of those humans, those people. Um, that, like, every step of capitalist progress is also drenched in blood, that um, the technology that we are using to talk to each other now relies on, um, you know, relies on people working in some of the most horrendous conditions in the world. Two-sided progress, um, drenched in blood. Um, the, um, uh, I, yeah, Willie's point about an analysis of race or racism, um, uh, really interesting, really important, and I think a kind of example of a strand of theory that's sort of like it, it's you know it's not it's not there in the Communist Manifesto. I think like it's you can read it as being implicit in um, the idea of kind of like the sort of unity of the working class regardless of borders, but you don't need to read it as implicit in that. I think you know it's not necessarily it's not necessarily true that Marx was thinking that as he wrote it. Probably quite unlikely. Um, but out of that kind of kernel of ideas, it's possible to develop, and people have taken and developed um, ideas. So um, the American, it's not something I know a huge amount about. I'm kind of um, working through some reading on the state and working up to reading some um, Angela Davies and kind of, I think that the American left developed quite a lot of kind of really good thinking about um, uh, about racism. And if you look at some of the debates in the pre-Stalinist Communist International about how the Communist Party in the USA should like relate to racism. Um, you know, it's it's an idea that um, it's an example of an idea that kind of like you know people have kind of gone on to develop and need to go on to develop. Um, uh, Daniel's point about the state—that's like that's quite a quite a fun one for the Communist Manifesto. So I'll try not to go down a rabbit hole too much. Like Marx and Engels change part of the Communist Manifesto later because they. Um, uh, they um, sort of change their mind about the state. So, like early on, you know, people think a revolution. What we need is a revolution, and that means like taking control of the state. And um, one of the lessons that Marx and Engels draw later from the Paris Commune in 1871, which is kind of another, like 1848, it's another turning point in the workers' movements in Europe. Um, before 1871, before the Paris Commune, you were a socialist if you wanted, you were a communist socialist you wanted, you were interested in the working class, you wanted the world republic. The radicals wanted a republic, you wanted the world republic. After 1871, after the Paris Commune, you were a, a communist if you wanted to do what the Paris Commune had done. And Marx and Engels, um, it's, it's in here, I think, let's see, where does he say it? Engels kind of says it in the preface. Um, uh, the, um, in the Paris Commune where the proletariat for the first time held political power for two whole months, this program has in some details become um, antiquated. One thing especially was proved by the Commune that the working class cannot simply lay hold of the ready-made state machinery and wield it for its own purposes. Um, this is an idea that Lenin develops in State and Revolution and kind of draws on um, Marx's writing and Engels' writing on the Paris Commune as well. 
um, to make the argument that what the working class needs to do is destroy um, the bourgeois state and develop its own semi-state apparatus to kind of defend itself um, through that kind of process of revolution. Um, again, like the arguments, the ideas raised in the Communist Manifesto leading us into like other avenues of study. Um, I, and um, kind of Lev's, uh, Lev's point, Lev's um, discussion with his friend. Um, so um, I think, so like I'm, I'm a teacher and in this country, a lot of people um, see my job as middle class. A lot of teachers see themselves as middle class. Um, I've also met teachers who um, uh, couldn't afford housing that had a working shower. Um, like there's, you know, there's, there's sociological class and there's economic class. And um, we're interested primarily in economic class because um, it tells you kind of something concrete about relationships between people in society, um, power dynamics between people in society. Um, uh, and, you know, we're interested in it. So the working class, um, a class of like wage workers um, who have no private property to use to make money. They have no capital. Um, they have to work, we have to work to, um, to live. Um, doesn't mean that sociological class isn't important because what people think about themselves is extremely important. How people view themselves is very, very important. French teachers um, have, a ten have more of a tendency to see themselves as working class um, and, you know, more militant, generally better kind of conditions and so on. Um, but don't really see themselves as middle class, even though they maybe have it better than English teachers. Um, so um, the uh, French teachers in France, not French teachers living in England, sorry, I'm not talking about the difference between the modern foreign language department and the English department. Um, uh, yeah, so um, Marx kind of talks about um, the working class a couple of points. He doesn't put it this way here, but the idea kind of is raised of the working class kind of understanding its role and its position in society. The idea that the job of the communists is to kind of draw out the logic of class antagonism to um, uh, kind of, you know, express and explain and, you know, make clear kind of class antagonism in society make clear the conflict between the working class and the ruling class to make it clear to workers like you know what their position in the world is so um you know kind of one problem we run into at the moment is um working class people who don't see their interests as aligned with the wider working class and that's like a political argument um you know and a political process to kind of go through with people um and um I think you mentioned sort of the middle class as well, and um, that's really interesting. Um, I'm not sure we have a ton of time to kind of go into it, but the um, sort of some of the stuff that Trotsky wrote about the role of the middle class in Germany, um, in, um, uh, in the kind of struggles between um, socialists and fascists. Um, and um, kind of Marx mentions... Um, like oppressed classes coming over to um, the side of the working class that essentially kind of ideas again, other socialists develop more elsewhere um, that um, the working class has to act as a political leadership for 
all oppressed people and all oppressed classes. Um, and, um, you know, part of that is a, a part of the middle class, um, which kind of finds itself stuck often between kind of like never quite reaching the kind of never reaching the prosperity of the ruling class and always under threat of being like thrown into thrown back into the ranks of the working class. Um, uh, that kind of like halfway position, not able to articulate an independent political program, but kind of experiencing a level of kind of like oppression and poverty um, and so on. Um, that like, you know, sort of through struggle, the working class has to present like itself as a leader for all of the kind of oppressed people in society. 